Well, as Les mentioned, next Sunday, uh, Pastor Dave Hatcher will come down to preach for me. And, uh, you know, Dave's my hired gun, so I asked him if he would come and uh, preach on parenting in the middle years. So, uh, you know, how do you raise godly middle schoolers on up into adults? Uh, this is something I need teaching in myself, so this is why I call, I call Dave uh, in. How do you raise a Tyler Hatcher, right? This is what we want to, what, what we want to do. So Dave's going to come. We're going to have our last hoorah uh, next week with him. Well, I'm sure we'll see him again in the future, but, you know, put an uh, exclamation mark on Trinity's uh, service to us in planting us. Uh, so he's going to come and teach on that. And then uh, the, fo- the sermon after that, so the following Sunday, uh, I'm going to give a sermon on work. And uh, this morning, I'm going to kind of set up Dave with a little marriage tune-up uh, sermon on the family. So I know we all want to get into Mark 13 and eschatology. We will get there, I promise you. Um, but consider uh, today, next Sunday, the Sunday after, a little kind of mini-series on the Christian family. All right. Uh, The title of my sermon is The Generous Marriage. The Generous Marriage. And I want to consider uh, this section of Proverbs from the perspective of the Christian household and particularly of the relationship between husband and wife. So what does it mean to be a generous husband or a generous wife? That's the question uh, we want to answer with help from Proverbs. Now, uh, one of the things we all like about Proverbs, or at least should like about Proverbs, is that uh, Proverbs is an eminently practical book, or at least it appears to be. Proverbs uh, keeps it real with how people actually are and with how life in the real world actually is. You read Proverbs through and you get this sense that there is cosmic justice in the world. The righteous get rewarded, the wicked are punished, the good guys win, the bad guys lose. And, you know, for those of us who struggle with long and complicated logical arguments, like Paul's letters, or like, you know, much of my teaching at times, uh, Proverbs condenses things down into, you know, two lines. One sentence. Here's the cause. Here's the effect. If you do this, then this will follow. Right? Proverbs is given to make simple people like you and me into wise kings and queens. That is what the whole book of Proverbs is about. It's how you train a young man, a young woman into a king or queen. So this is the book for teenagers, for young people with short attention spans. Okay? So Proverbs is for you. We can think of it as like you know, uh, God's Twitter feed. Solomon has gathered all of the good common sense and street smarts that a young man needs as he enters adulthood and he puts it all in one place. And because uh, finding a wife is high on the priority list for a young man, a young prince, or at least it should be, Solomon has collected some sage advice about what to look for and what to avoid in a potential spouse. Uh, But he doesn't stop there. He also gives a lot of advice for how to maintain fidelity and love after you are married. So to give you just one example, uh, Solomon says this in Proverbs 5, 17 to 20. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? So God wants a husband, commands a husband, 
to be intoxicated, uh, enraptured always with the love of his wife, to delight in her, to enjoy her, to find satisfaction in her. And that, he says, is the strongest antidote to infidelity, to the seductress and her temptations. In modern terms, we might say, you know, in marriage, the best defense is a good offense. So that's just one example of Solomon's, you know, aphoristic marriage advice. And uh, sometimes we can think that uh, that seems kind of unrealistic. You know, nobody has the, uh, you know, emotional tension and feelings you had when you went on your first date, uh, you know, He's not saying you have that until you die, right? We all know love matures and grows and deepens, all of that. But we can wonder, is it really possible to have a happy and loving marriage all your days? To be enraptured in the love of your spouse until death do you part? Well, the answer God gives in Scripture is essentially yes, but it's going to take a whole lot of work. Yes, but it's going to take a lot of work. And the kind of work that a husband and a wife must engage in is chiefly a work of generosity, a work of giving oneself to the other, a work of self-sacrifice and self-denial and spending and being spent for one another. And this radical generosity is only possible with the help of one whose very nature is generosity, namely God. Two of God's uh, essential attributes are that God is good and that God is love. Right? Everything else we do in theology, and there's lots we do in theology, is basically to help us just say God is good and God is love, but you know, mega love, super love, uh, super good, super, super good. This is what we're doing in theology. So we want to say and understand, that's the other piece, like say and understand just how good God is just how loving God is. And these are two attributes of God that you can never overshoot. You can, uh, however good you think God is, he's greater than that, okay? However loving you think God is, he's more loving than that. You just always are trying to max out God's goodness and God's love. So when you put these two kind of attributes together, that God is good and God is love, uh, you put those together and you have kind of what we call generosity. Generosity. Generosity is bestowing goodness upon another. What is goodness? It's simply what is desirable. It's what all creatures desire. And you can think of love as kind of the hand that is giving that good thing to satisfy that desire. Give you a couple verses here. It says in Psalm 145, 16, uh, says of God, Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. Again, in Psalm 104, 28, it says, You open your hand, they are filled with good. So to be generous is who God is in his very essence. It is who God is as the blessed Trinity. It is what God reveals by creating this world and calling it all very good. And even more than that, most supremely, it is what God does to redeem this fallen creation, as that most famous verse of John 3.16 declares, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the foundation of all generosity, whether in marriage or outside of it, is the very nature of God. It is the very shape of the Trinity that the Father eternally gives, begets, 
communicates the divine essence in its totality to the Son. And then together as one principle, Father and Son breathe forth the Holy Spirit, whose personal, personal name is love and gift. When the New Testament speaks of spiritual gifts or graces, this is none other than the action of God's love and goodness working within you. Those who have the Holy Spirit bear the fruit of the Spirit, among which are love and goodness. Galatians 5.22 Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and chapter 13 that there are many good and wonderful spiritual gifts. You know, words of knowledge, you can speak in tongues, you can interpret those languages. But above all of that, he says, the more excellent way is to have charity to have what we call supernatural and divine love that God gives to you. It is this love and goodness that descends from God that is the only way that you can have a marriage full of generosity. Put another way, apart from Jesus, there is no hope for a happy marriage. Both the power and example of Jesus Christ and his bleeding love for the church and the church's submission to him as bridegroom is the engine for generosity between husband and wife, right? You, you know your heart. We are such sinful and selfish creatures by default that we need outside help. Left to ourselves, we will only make ourselves and our spouse miserable. So you need divine help to dwell within you. And from that infinite ocean and superabundant goodness that is God, we too can actually pour forth goodness into others. So that's the foundation. You can't build a marriage on sand, right? Jesus says, you could hear a lot of sermons, you could hear a lot of good things, but unless you actually do it, unless you actually obey it, you're building on sand, and you might think you're building a nice castle, but, you know, the wave's going to come and knock it down. So you build on the rock. You build on this foundation, who is God. God is the rock. So with that as your foundation, how specifically then, can we be generous to one another in marriage? And, you know, how is God generous to us? In myriad and innumerable ways. And just so, you can be generous to your spouse in myriad and innumerable ways. So we can't talk about everything, right? But uh, let's look at what Proverbs has to say for us, uh, say for us on this topic. Uh, so starting in verse 22, and I'm only going to touch a few of these Proverbs, but you can meditate upon all of these uh, from this angle. So verse 22, this is a fun one, right? As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. This is also why kids love Proverbs, right? You get these, these funny, comical pictures that God paints for us. So you got this picture of a pig, a muddy sow, with a valuable gold ring in its nose. And God says, think about that. And if you lack discretion, uh, that's you. <laughs> that's what you are like. Is that insulting? Yes, it's intended to be insulting, but it's the kind of insult that comes from a father who loves you and doesn't want you to be a, a, a pig with a gold ring in its nose. The first audience that uh, Solomon is talking to here is actually a young man looking for a wife. So he's trying to give him advice for what to look for. So stay away from the woman who runs her mouth too much, who is immodest imprudent and indiscreet. You know, if she follows, look at her followers. It, one, see if she has an Instagram account. If she does, see who she follows. And if it's a bunch of vanity, well then, you know, don't ask her out. 
The Apostle Peter states similarly in 1 Peter 3 saying, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, and putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So in scripture and in reality, there are two kinds of beauty. There is beauty that fades and beauty that does not fade. There is beauty that is corruptible and there is beauty that is incorruptible. Both beauties are good, but one is more valuable. External physical beauty is good. You should aspire to it, but it does not last. Whereas internal and spiritual beauty is good now and forever. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8 to all the men, for bodily exercise, you know, go into the gym, profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So beauty, which what is what women desire and God created you to desire. Strength, which is what men desire and God created you to be strong. Those are good things that you should, you know, go to the gym if you need to, work out, get swole, whatever you need to do. But just, just remember, uh, you're going to get old. You're going to get weak. And therefore, budget your time and energies accordingly. If it takes you, you know, three hours to do your hair and makeup, and then you say, I don't have time to pray, well, okay, how nice is your hair? <laughs> is it really, is it, right? Where are your priorities, okay? So God wants women to be beautiful. He created you women to desire to be beautiful. Men, we want you to be beautiful. You are the crown. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11? He says, woman is the glory of man. Woman is the crown of all creation. And while external beauty is good and has its place, without discretion, Without modesty, without this quiet and gentle spirit to accompany it, God says, you're like a ring of gold in a pig's snout. So don't, don't be that. So wives, one of the ways that you can be generous to your husband is by cultivating this most excellent virtue and quality of discretion. Yes, do your hair. Yes, look pretty for your husband, but prize discretion above all of that. Now, what exactly is discretion? Uh, discretion is, uh, you could put it this way, discretion is like a verbal and emotional self-control. It is restraining yourself from the need to tell everyone everything all the time. And this is not merely a personality difference between introverts and extroverts, where it's like, you know, intro- introverts have discretion and extroverts don't. So don't hear me as saying that by no means. Discretion is all about appropriate timing. It says in Ecclesiastes 3, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. So what is discretion? It's knowing what season you're in and dressing accordingly knowing what to do in it. It is the habit of constantly asking the Lord in every circumstance, God, how can I please you with my attitude and my actions? You know, do I really need to say this? Do I really need to share this? It says in James 3, 6 to 8, that the tongue is a fire and a world of iniquity. 
He says, the tongue is so set among our members, members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. How many petty fights and fruitless squabbles could have been avoided if you had simply kept your mouth shut? This, of course, goes for both men and women, husbands and wives. But either way, right, don't be a gold ring in a pig's snout. Study to be discreet. And so Solomon charges us in this proverb, but especially beautiful women who are, uh, might be tempted to trust in their beauty, as Israel was prone to do, Ezekiel 16, 15. He charges us to learn discretion. So if you want to be generous to your husband, become like the virtuous wife of whom it says in Proverbs 31, the heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Let me read that again. This is Proverbs 31, 11 to 12. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. So husbands, can you say this about your wife? If not, don't blame her. It's your responsibility to get her to the point where you can say that. Right? This, is, this is how God treats the church. We are the bride of Christ, and uh, you know, do we sometimes give God a bad name by our actions? Oh, yeah, we do. And yet God continues to purify his bride so that we can reflect him and be his crown and glory. So, wives, if your husband cannot say that about you, ask yourself, why not? Why can't your husband safely trust you? Why can't he say that uh, you do him good all the days of his life? What needs to change in you so that he can praise and extol your virtues? A generous marriage is a marriage built on love and trust. And we should all, husband and wife, be seeking to grow in our discretion of what time it is, of what season it is. Is it a time to speak or a time to be silent? Is it a time to sit down face to face and stare into one another's eyes? Or is it a time to get back to work and work side by side in what God has given you to do? Discretion is all about knowing what time it is and what God wants you to do in that moment. What God wants you to do in that moment, right? This doesn't mean you are a slave to what your husband or wife's wishes are. It's saying, God, what do you want me to do in this scenario? And then submitting or exercising authority accordingly. Continuing in verses 23 to 26, we get this kind of assortment of Proverbs about the way God created the world, the way that God blesses the generous. As we give to others, God pours back into us. Or as Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So this is Solomonic wisdom here. Uh, it says in verse 23, the desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. 
The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. The vast majority of marital conflicts come from forgetting that you are one flesh with your spouse. You and your wife are not on opposite teams. You're on the same team. And God says, you are as one person. Husband is head, wife is the body. Just like Christ is the head and the church is his body. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 28, men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. So when you love your spouse, you are in an indirect way doing what is best for you. By being a generous soul to your spouse and giving to them, you are the one actually becoming rich. By watering them, God waters you. Marriage is not a zero-sum game. Marriage is not a competition between rivals. God intended marriage to be a win-win scenario, scenario for both husband and wife. And when you put your spouse's interests above your own, you do as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. When you do that, hey, then you're becoming like Jesus. And regardless of whether your spouse reciprocates or not, you are doing what pleases God. And that is what all of us should be living to do. You cannot control how your spouse responds. You could think you're being generous and your spouse might be like, that is the last thing I wanted them to do, right? So you can't control them, but you can control you. And that is all God is asking you to do. If Jesus commands you to love your enemies, how much more ought you to love the person who is one flesh with you? When we wound our spouse, we are wounding ourselves. No sane man shoots his own kneecap. And yet that is what you are doing when you sin against your spouse. You're shooting yourself. Why would you do that? So this is the principle of marriage that is easy to hear and easy to forget. You have to drill this into your head. Genesis 2.24, God says, The two shall be one flesh. You are one flesh with your spouse. So what is good for you in God's eyes is going to be good for the both of you. Consider now verse 24 from this lens of marital generosity. It says, there's one who scatters yet increases more. There's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. So in this proverb, uh, one person is being what we would call stingy or tight-fisted. And that stinginess, they think they're being thrifty, uh, it actually impoverishes them. They hurt themselves by their own fear of relinquishing something they think they really need and want. Whereas this proverb says, the one who scatters, who sows seed, who is open-handed and gives, uh, they're the one that God gives more to. They increase more and more. You, You get richer by giving. Now apply this to the marriage bed. When uh, marital intimacy becomes weaponized or used as a tool or bargaining chip to get something else you want, it is yourself that you are robbing. God intended the marriage bed to be a place of mutual generosity. This is a command from 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. Paul says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife... Does not, does not have authority over her own body, 
but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here is one place where there is total equality in marriage. You can be an egalitarian in marriage here and nowhere else, right? The husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. And the wife does not have authority over her own body. It says the husband does. And yet what is this authority used for? What is the context? It's bringing pleasure to the other. It's a command from God. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. This means you got to talk about this. You got to communicate what your desires are, what you do, uh, what season of life it is, uh, what you hope for in your marriage. So ask your spouse, how can I be more generous to you in this part of our marriage? And I'll leave that there. Continuing in verse 25, it says, the generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself. That's a good verse to memorize. The generous soul will be made rich. The generous soul will be made rich. So how rich do you want to be? How good of a marriage do you want to have? Many people are just content with the status quo and don't realize that you really can be enraptured and intoxicated with one another's love if you obey God. And that's the big if. I want to highlight uh, one potential pitfall uh, for those of you who hear this and you desire to be more generous. Think of generosity as like a great a fountainhead of water that is gushing out of you. This is the image Jesus gives the woman at the well in John 4.14. He says, the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And then in this Proverbs, talking about you know, watering other people. So the fountain of God's love is flowing in you. And the question is, well, who do you give this living water to first? Well, this is where I have seen, uh, sadly, uh, people go wrong. They, they want to be generous, but they end up overlooking the people closest to them because they think that generosity is only for those you know, outside and far away from us. They think that hospitality is just about serving the poor and needy, but not their own household. And this is the false dichotomy that uh, many well-meaning people can fall into. So this is kind of like you know, the missionary who sells everything, goes to evangelize some distant foreign tribe, but he does so at the expense of his wife and children. So the missionary thinks he's being generous, and to the tribe, indeed, perhaps he is, but he's not making the sacrifice that God actually wants him to make. Right? This is not a sacrifice God asks missionaries to make. You don't sacrifice your marriage and your children to go reach some tribe. So the generosity that God wants from you is like this growing river, this fountain of water that flows out of you. It starts in you and it goes outward, watering everyone along the way. So Jesus says to love your neighbor. And who is the neighbor that is closest to you? Well, it's your wife. It's your children, it's your immediate family, it's your church, it's those nearest to you. 
So generosity and hospitality must begin in our own soul. And only after we have drenched our own marriage and household with love and goodness are we qualified to give real love and goodness to anyone else. Right? It does, does you no good to invite more distant neighbors into your home if your home is a place of bitterness, resentment, ingratitude, and enmity. Right? Nobody wants to come over and be a guest at your table where no love is. So prioritize your generosity in accord with God's commands. Paul says this in Galatians 6.10. He says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So as you have opportunity, we don't all have the same opportunities, we don't all have the same resources, but God knows what you have, whether it's the widow's two mites or the rich man's riches. Whatever it is, whatever opportunity you have, do good to all. But he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So do good, but prioritize your church body, the household of faith. Or consider this other Proverbs, uh, proverb. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So this is a charge to parents and grandparents to plan, to save, to be generous to your children and grandchildren, and don't feel bad about it. Don't be like you know, that wealthy billionaire who gives all his money to some woke charity and not a dime to his own children. Right? That is not biblically ordered generosity, and it will only provoke resentment. There's a great story uh, from Jim Wilson. So if you were here early on, we read Jim Wilson's How to Be Free from Bitterness. Uh, Jim Wilson has since passed away. And Jim Wilson was uh, the greatest evangelist I, uh, of people that I personally knew. Uh, Jim Wilson had a gift that many people do not have. He could just be, you know, talking to you in the aisle at Safeway, and the next thing you know, you have become a Christian. And you're not even sure what happened, how that, how. So Jim Wilson was a great man. Uh, he's Doug Wilson's dad. Doug Wilson was my mentor and pastor. Uh, and he was this marvelous evangelist. And uh, Jim would have people over to his house for counseling often. People, his house was just kind of open. People would come in. He'd talk to them. And you could not go into Jim Wilson's house without leaving with a stack of books. Even if you're like, Jim, I already have all of these books because you gave them, gave them to me last time. He's like, take them anyways and give them to someone else. Okay? Jim was a generous man with his time, with his words. And he tells us, uh, Doug tells a story about uh, one day when he was little, so imagine a little Doug Wilson, if you can, uh, running into the room where his dad is meeting with someone, you know, hearing their problems, trying to minister to them. And the person being counseled gets kind of annoyed because little Doug keeps running in and interrupting. And he says, you know, hey, can you, can you do something about this? And Jim, in his classic blunt way, just says to the man, he's more important than you. He's more important than you. Jim Wilson knew his priorities. He knew that his children were his qualification to minister to that man in front of him. And it was that kind of thing that taught little Doug Wilson what God the Father is like. God is not too busy for you. God is not preoccupied with other people's problems so that he can't be interrupted. God is not so far away and distant that he will not 
drop everything, get down on the floor and wrestle with you. Remember, God is good and God is love in his very being. He can't be otherwise. It is the Father's name and nature to give, to beget, to pour forth very being. And that is what we earthly husbands and fathers should want to imitate and communicate in our very finite and imperfect way to our wife and children. They should know by our actions and occasionally our words, you are more important. You are more important. I'll close with this. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to, to possess a joy that no one and no thing can take from you. John 16, 22. And that indestructible gladness and joy is found exclusively in God. It says in Psalm 43, 4, I will go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Is God your exceeding joy? If he is not, you're not going to have a joyful marriage. I promise you that. The only way to have a generous marriage is if God is your exceeding joy. The only way to participate in God's superabundant and overflowing happiness is to first participate in God's goodness and love. To become like the most blessed and happy God, you must acquire a generous soul. You must be willing, as the Apostle Paul says, to spend and be spent for your wife, for your children, for your people, for your God. For this is what God has done for you. He has given himself. He has given his son. He has given his Holy Spirit, who is the very gift and love that our hearts yearn for. And as St. Augustine said, our heart is restless, O God, until it finds its rest in thee. So may you know this peace, this love, and this joy in your marriage. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh God, you tell us to be imitators of you. And when we consider your perfection, and your goodness, and your patience, and your kindness, and all that you are, it seems laughable that you would tell us to imitate you. You know better than we do our finitude, our sins, our history, our past, our pain. And I thank you that you work with us exactly where we are, not where we should be. And yet we ask that you would put in us a zeal for you that overflows into zeal to have a healthy marriage, godly children, to evangelize our neighbors, to be a light of righteousness, of joy and thankfulness with songs coming forth from our lips all the day long. God, we want to find you and to have you as our exceeding joy. And so we ask that you would remove the earthly obstacles to that joy, those rival gods, those counterfeit goods that ensnare us and pull us away from you. We ask that you would do all of this In Christ's name, amen.